Good morning. So I want to start off by showing uh, a picture. I'm the youth pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church, so I think uh, just like any proud dad, you've got to show off pictures of your kids. So I'm going to show off some pictures of our kids at Fellowship Bible Church here. Uh, last month, we, took a, we did a youth retreat. We traditionally do a youth retreat at the beginning of the year to kick off our year. And so we had a, 180 middle and high schoolers out in Gore, Virginia at a youth fall retreat. Um, great kids, a fun time. Um, these are just, uh, just a wonderful group of kids. And I don't just say that to, to encourage you to come down and volunteer. I really mean it. They are really great kids. Um, and one of the things we do at the fall retreat traditionally is uh, we, take a, we do a survey. We have all the kids. We try to encourage them to fill out a survey just to gauge and get a feel for where are they at. Uh, what do they believe about Jesus? Have they put their faith and trust in him? Um, how are they dealing with some of life's issues? And, um, and how are they incorporating some of the maybe spiritual disciplines into their lives? Those kind of uh, things in survey. And I, I wanted to share with you one of the results uh, from that survey. Um, a couple of the questions we have are designed to get a sense of, of how many of our kids struggle with just anxieties and, and depression in their lives and uh, where they're feeling the weight and the burdens of life. And I want to share a result from that survey with all of you. So these are, when you combine kids that struggle with anxiety and or uh, depression, here, was the, here were the results. Uh, of the kids that answered those questions, 116 said yes. You know, these are, these are your kids, my kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your siblings. Um, only 46 were able to say no out of our congregation, out of our kids. Um, and I, I would be willing to bet some money that if we took a survey right now of everybody in this room, I don't think the results would be all that different from what our kids are going through. Life is hard. Life is hard, and, and it can come sometimes over us um, like a wave, and, the, and it, it can feel like the, there's just, we go through life with this low-grade anxiety that's just always there. Or some of us go through where waves of uh, depression can set in, where, where life can seem bigger and darker than what we can handle and manage. You know, when, when something happens in life, when you get that phone call from your daughter whose cancer is back and it doesn't look good, it is hard to think of anything else. That wells up in our minds and consumes our thoughts, consumes us. Uh, it's bigger than we are. When you get that letter in the mail that the bank is proceeding with foreclosing, that immediately takes over our thoughts, our minds. If we wake up in the middle of the night with a panic, that uh, uh, we're worried about where our, our kid is, they're struggling and you see them not walking with God and you see their life is going to hit a brick wall and it tears you up. Life is hard. Not just for teenagers, for all of us. And, and so if you're not struggling with it right now, the, based on those statistics, the person sitting next to you is. This is the reality of life. You know, it's not, we are not immune from this. So you can look around, we're all smiling, we're all here dressed up nice Sunday morning and putting on our, our church face. But the reality is the person next to us, we ourselves are heavy 
with the burdens of this world. We see news like the horror of what happened yesterday in Pittsburgh, and it burdens us. You look at the, the vitriol in this political season and the hate that is in the world, and it, it breaks our hearts and it looms up bigger, and we cry out, where are you, God? So if you could, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 39, because I want to remind us of where we left off. Mark taught us last week of how these first 39 chapters is, is it's sort of a, uh, coming to a conclusion of a section of the book where, where Isaiah is proclaiming the coming judgments of God that these nations that are coming against you, Israel, O Judah, uh, they repent, turn away from their wicked ways, turn to your God, and judgment is coming. But chapter 40, we're going to see it, it's the, the, the focus shifts now. So where we were at the end of chapter 39, there in verse 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now, if you remember what Mark said last week, you know, Hezekiah takes this attitude because he gets promised it's not going to happen in his lifetime. So he's like, I dodged that bullet. That's great. Well, how do you think Hezekiah's kids are feeling right about now? And the grandkids and the generations that follow, they are seeing Babylon rising up as a nation because when, when this prophecy is given in 39, Babylon's small. But as the years go on and they see Babylon rising and they know this prophecy that God has spoken, is you can imagine the, the, the uh, anxiety, the fear that maybe is gripping the people's hearts. So what happens in chapter 40 is Isaiah's prophecies now, um, he jumps to the future and he's going to offer prophecies and comforts to the future generation that's off in captivity. And he, so, so Isaiah jumps forward and listen to the heart of, that he's addressing. He's going to address a, a broken worldview, a broken uh, uh, heart that these future people have. And, and I hope to, today we see that it doesn't just apply to that group, but it applied to the people living in Isaiah's day, and it applies to us sitting in this room today. So look ahead to chapter 40, verse 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? See, here's, the, here's what's going on. Their persecution, their oppression in this foreign land is so big in their eyes, it's all they can see. And when our eyes get focused on our problems and our problems become big, our God becomes small and distant and, uh, and disconnected from the reality of our life. Because our mindset and our eyes are focused on that doctor's report we got. Or focused on that relationship that is being broken. And it's, and, or it's, it, my eyes are focused on this drudgery of life that I, I'm in a rut and I can't seem to get out. And this is all I can see. It consumes my whole world. And God is small and God is distant. And that's what these people are experiencing. And, and so Isaiah's crying, why do you say, my God, why, you can't see me? What do you mean God can't see me? And my just, the justice do me escapes your notice, God. This is where they're at. Small God, big problems. 
Back in verse 1, what is, and we're going to see in verse 1 of chapter 40, this is now going to become the theme, really, of the rest of the book of Isaiah, but especially this chapter. He says, comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. It's a call to comfort. Now notice, it's not a call to be comforted. So God's not saying, Isaiah, Isaiah, take heart, be comforted. No, he's saying, Isaiah, you proclaim words that bring comfort to my people. And I think we can apply this to ourselves, that I need to proclaim words to God's people that give them comfort, that give them courage. And so when my friend is going through a difficult time in life and the clouds are dark and he can't see God at work, I need to speak words of comfort into his life. This is a command for us to comfort the people of God. And that's what Isaiah is going to seek to do. And we're going to see, I want us to notice, he's going to seek to comfort us us with these four truths that he's going to lay out for us. How is it that Isaiah wants to bring comfort to the people of God. And the big picture, as we go through this chapter, I want you to see, he wants to fix their eyes. He wants to fix the worldview that the people who are in the midst of suffering have. Their worldview is broken. It's like they can't see the world rightly, and Isaiah is going to bring them comfort by fixing their eyesight. So we go through these verses. Verse 2 says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Verse 3 says, A voice cries out. Verse 6, A voice says, Cry out. Verse 9, Lift up your voice with strength. Behold your God. Verse 10, Behold, look. Verse 15, Behold. Verse 21, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? So you hear this coming back and again and again in Isaiah chapter 40. What he wants us to do, what he's saying is our vision and our hearing is broken. And Isaiah wants to speak words of comfort to us to fix our eyesight, fix our hearing, and correct it. And so how is he going to correct it? Well, you've already heard the hint. He's going to correct our vision to say, Behold your God. This is the eyesight that he wants us to have. Behold your God. So the first thing he wants to see, go down to verse 12 of Isaiah 40. What does he want us to see about God, behold about God? The first thing is he wants us to see how awesome God is. Now, I'm an 80s kid, so I use that word awesome flippantly often, right? Oh, dude, that's awesome. Good job. Oh, that was awesome. Um, And I have a friend, John Cribbs, who got on my case one time about that. He said, why are you using that word? Like, only God is awesome. And he's right. That word, awesome, I want us to think of it in that tense. Isaiah wants us to behold how awesome this God is. And so he's going to use poetic language here to stretch our imagination, to stretch our vision, to try to comprehend and wrap our minds around how awesome this God is. So he says there in verse 12, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand." 
Well, that sounds like it's just, he doesn't even explain that anymore. Just who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So I did an experiment with my girls to measure how much water I could hold in the hollow of my hand. There was a little controversy because I'm pretty sure I was able to hold two tablespoons, but they were saying, no, it was leaking out. So they only gave me credit for holding one tablespoon of water in, my, in the hollow of my hand. Um, so we'll go with the one, <clears throat> girls. So it would take 256 of my handfuls to fill up a gallon jug, right? There's 256 tablespoons in a gallon. That, so that we can get our minds around that. But a swimming pool is, on average, 15,000 gallons of water. That's 3.8 million of my handfuls to fill up your swimming pool. If I, that would take me a long time. But I can get my mind, I can imagine 3.8 million. But some of you maybe live down the road by Lake Frederick. How many of those swimming pools do you think it takes to fill up Lake Frederick? I did the math. 50,965 swimming pools it would take to fill up Lake Frederick. Now you're starting to get into math now that I can't get my mind around if I tried to take that to handfuls. Well, Lake Frederick's really not that big of a lake. Lake Anna down the road's bigger. Matter of fact, it's 130 times bigger. It would take 130 Lake Fredericks to fill up Lake Anna. But there are much bigger lakes than that in the U.S., right? You've got the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan. Guess how many Lake Annas it would take to fill up Lake Michigan? I did the math. 60,411 Lake Annas to fill up Lake Michigan. Now, that doesn't compare anything to the oceans. If you wanted to use Lake Michigan as a giant cup and fill up the oceans, you would have to use 271,452 Lake Michigans to fill up the oceans. We can't get our minds around the math if we bring that back to my hand. It works out to four with 23 zeros after it of my handfuls to fill up the oceans. These are the kind of, we can't even begin to comprehend that. And Isaiah throws it out there that God measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. Who do we think we are? Who is God? Behold your God who measures the waters in his hand. His next throwaway statement there in verse 12 is, who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. I did more math on this one. You know, the universe is big. I had to look it up. It's, if, if you look out from Earth, scientists say the farthest it is possible to see what they call the observable universe is 45.3 billion light years to the edge of what we can see. Each light year is about 6 trillion miles. So 45 billion times 6 trillion, it's a big, big number that we can't even imagine. So let's try to do an exercise here. All right, let's shrink the universe down so we can get a, a, a scale of it. So if we shrunk the sun of our solar system down to fit in this sanctuary, a big giant sun sitting here in the middle of the floor, the earth would be smaller than a baseball. All right, so that's the comparison of the earth to the sun. If I continued to shrink the universe down until the sun was the size of a penny... And let's say, all right, now we've shrunk it down and we built this model set of the universe and the sun is the size of a penny. And we want to go from the sun to visit the sun's nearest uh, uh, star, Alpha Centauri. We would all have to load up in a bus out here and set out on a road trip because we wouldn't get to the sun's nearest star until we got to Charlotte, North Carolina, 350 miles away. 
So, and, and still at that scale, our own solar system doesn't fit in this room. You've got to continue to shrink the, earth, the, the, the universe down till the sun is a little bit, three times the size of a grain of salt. Once you've shrunk it down that small, now our solar system and our planets fit in this room. We can't imagine how, but our solar system is only a small part of the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy we're a part of. If you shrunk the Milky Way galaxy down to fit in this room, you'd have to get out your microscope to look at our solar system because it's 300 times smaller than the width of a human hair. That's how big the Milky Way galaxy is. If you take that whole observable universe and you shrink it down to fit in this room, once again, you'd have to get out your microscope to see the Milky Way galaxy because it's smaller than a bacteria. We can't begin to imagine the vastness of space. And Isaiah says, behold your God who measures it with the breadth of his hand. Our God is awesome. We can't, and if you're sitting there saying, I don't understand any of that math, that's okay. Nobody understands those kind of numbers. That's the point. Our God is unfathomably big, majestic, awesome. And so Isaiah wants us to think on how awesome our God is. And he goes on using this poetic language from verse 12, 13, 14. I want to look at verse 15 there for a second. He says, Behold, the nations are like the drop from a bucket. I like this one. Especially right now in the political season, you know, all all the politics and nations and and who's in charge, you know, that's in the news and we're all consumed about it. And here Isaiah says, The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Notice it's not a drop in a bucket. It's a drop from a bucket. What's Isaiah saying? What he's saying is the nations are like if I have a bucket and I scoop up water out of a well to carry it off somewhere, the nations are like the drop that fell off the side of the bucket. Inconsequential. I mean, you don't turn around and weep over that drop that fell off the side of the bucket that you scooped out of the water. They're they're vanity. It's emptiness. To God, the nations are a drop from a bucket. Behold your God. We get caught up in the problems and the concerns of life and of this world. And and God is saying, the nations are like a drop from a bucket to me. Behold, I measure the heavens with the breadth of my hand. I measure the waters in the hollow of my hand. This is your God. He is awesome. He is big. We can't even imagine how big and how awesome our God is. So if we, if we take time, uh, and we can't take the time right now to go through verses 18 to 26, because what Isaiah wants us to consider is how foolish is it that man would set up an idol to worship it? In light of this idea of how awesome our God is, the fact that we as as men worship things made by hands, pursue after things in this world to bring us comfort, to bring us pleasure, the fact that we would worship those things is an affront to a God that big and this awesome and this mighty. How is it that we could compare this idol to the God that created the universe? It's a joke. It's it's offensive to God that we would do that. Here's the second thing that 
Isaiah wants us to fix about our vision, our broken vision. He wants us to lift up our eyes and see this awesome God. And the second thing, maybe, once you realize this first thing, the second thing to me becomes even harder to fathom. Go back to verse 3. Because here's, here's what we also can put in our eyesight. Verse 3 through 5 says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what Isaiah and we, as we look at this, we've got to try to reconcile this idea that this God is so awesome that I am beholding. Yet in the New Testament, this passage I just read is what John the Baptist says about himself. He says, he is this voice proclaiming this God of Isaiah 40 and pointing to a man in the flesh walking the hillsides of, of Israel. Do you see why maybe the religious leaders at the time rejected this idea? It's nonsense. This awesome God of the universe walking around as a man, that's what you're claiming? And that's what we have to wrestle with. And, And Isaiah wants us to behold our God in the flesh. This awesome big God that measures the universe out with his hands took on flesh and walked amongst us. Lift up your eyes and see. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This gigantic, awesome God that we can't even fathom dwelt within the body and person of Jesus Christ. That, that, that is an overwhelming thought. But this is a thought Isaiah wants us to have to bring us comfort that we would fix our eyes and behold this God. Philippians chapter 2 says this, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is this awesome God, creator of the universe, who subjects himself to the sin of mankind and goes to a cross and dies. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's so hard to wrap our minds around. We look at Jesus and we behold our God and it's meant to be overwhelming. It's meant to put us in our right place and see God for who he really is and see myself for who I really am. And this is what Isaiah wants to bring us comfort, is fix our eyes, behold who this God is. He's awesome. And he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he goes to the cross for us. The third thing he points out is, behold the word of your God. Down to verse 8, he says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is meant to be a comfort to us because we... We are in the midst of struggles and anxieties. The people he's writing to are off in Babylon, and they need to know that this big, awesome God, who for them is coming in the flesh, his word stands forever. When he says something, it comes true, because he is truth, and he speaks it into existence. It's impossible for it not to. 
And when we consider how big and awesome God is, it makes sense his word stands forever. And church, this is important for us to remember. Uh, The New Testament quotes this. Jesus points to this. He says in Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That's it. Think about that for a second. It's incredible. Here's a man in the flesh standing in Israel say, and applying Isaiah 40 to his word, claiming to be that awesome God. That's mind-blowing. 1 Peter chapter 1 quotes from this passage. He says, starting in verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, Because all flesh is like grass grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. When we behold our God and behold that his word stands forever, I can have confidence that Jesus Christ has really given me eternal life. Why? Because he said it. And his word stands forever. And I can behold his word and find comfort. I can behold how awesome God is. Lift my eyes up and see him in the flesh. And that his word lasts forever. And that brings me comfort. The fourth point that Isaiah wants us to consider when we behold this God is behold your God's love. Go with me again to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. He says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now listen to verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, behold our God. In majesty, how big and vast and awesome he is. And then this God, somehow in the flesh, walking amongst us, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. And his word endures forever, and he loves me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He takes this truth of Isaiah 40, of this awesome God who is the good shepherd, and Jesus claims it and says he is this shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. See, this idea that this awesome God of the universe loves me as insignificant, as small, as tiny as my one tablespoon is. This God loves me. And that correct vision, this eyesight that I need to have, that Isaiah wants to fix, when I'm in the midst of troubles and anxieties and stress and depression and life overcomes me like a wave and all I can see are the waters, I need somebody to comfort, comfort me. 
to take my eyes and point them back to this awesome God. I need to lift up my eyes and see this awesome God who loves me, who took on flesh, who went to the cross, whose word endures forever. This God is more awesome than I can wrap my eyes around. That's where my eyes need to be because as my God gets bigger, my problems become smaller. And as my eyes are fixed on him, I can trust now that he is in control because he is God. And that's the comfort that Isaiah 40 is offering to his people. And so that brings us to where Isaiah concludes this thought. The wings like eagles. Right? This is the verse that we all know from Isaiah 40. The wings like eagles. Starting in verse 28. Actually, let's start in 27 to remind us of where we started. He said, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Do, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Even youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let's go back to this word here, wait. Those who wait for the Lord. Um, this isn't a, a, another word that could be used, wait, where it's a passive, I'm just going to sit back here and wait for something to happen. That's not the wait. To, matter of fact, this word that's used is often translated, those who look to. And personally, I think that would be the better translation because of the context of Isaiah 40 saying, Behold, lift your eyes up, see. So what he's saying here at the end are those who look upon and look to and hope in this everlasting, awesome God who took on flesh, who loves me, whose word endures forever. As I look to him and my problems become stronger, he gives me new strength. He gives me endurance to carry on through those long, hard days that I'm going through. See, God isn't promising, and Isaiah isn't telling those people in, in captivity that, oh, don't worry, your situation's going to get better. That's not the comfort that he's offering you, or me, them. The comfort that he's offering is he says, lift up your eyes and see. Behold your God. That is what comfort we are being offered. He is awesome. He took on flesh. His word endures forever. And he loves me. Behold your God. And as I do that, as I wait on that God, he doesn't give me a new charge of strength. It says he gives me new strength, meaning it's kind of like, uh, he, it's not a rechargeable battery. It's like God takes my batteries out and plugs me into a new source of power. That's what he says happens as I behold my God through the long, hard days of life, and I lift up and I see he gives me wings. 
He gives me endurance. He gives me strength to carry on, to make it another day because he is the God of the universe, the everlasting creator. And I can trust him because his word stands forever and he loves me. See, Isaiah wants to, he wants us to put on these glasses. My wife made me these glasses. See, Isaiah, the point Isaiah is making is when I'm suffering, when, I, when I'm in this mindset of where is my God and why doesn't he bring justice into the world and into my situation, what Isaiah is saying is my eyesight is broken. I'm looking at the wrong things. Put on the lens of Isaiah 40 and behold my God. That's what he's offering us as comfort that we put on the lens of this book, of this word of God, and we look at all of life through those lens. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 applies this truth this way. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. He doesn't just say humble yourself under God. Peter reminds us, humble ourselves under this awesome, magnificent, big, huge, mighty God. That's who we're humbling ourselves under. So that at the proper time, he may exalt me. Casting all of my anxieties on him because he cares for me. Behold your God who loves you and cast our anxieties on him. He is awesome. He is big. He is beyond our understanding and our comprehension. Paul Tripp has a book called Awe. It's really good. And in, in his book, he has a whole chapter devoted to Isaiah 40. Um, and I want to read just a little quote out of, Isaiah, uh, out of Paul Tripp's book. He says, Isaiah 40 comforts us not because it helps us understand life or divine the future, but because it reminds us of the glory of God who rules in majesty over all the things that would otherwise rob us of comfort and hope. Behold your God. Life is hard. And it, it's easy to very quickly let our eyes focus down on the waves of water that are coming over us. And we need each other. See, remember, it's the command, comfort my people. I need you when my skies get dark and gray. I need you to remind me of this truth. Remind me to put on these glasses. Remind me to lift up my eyes and see. Because it's in that that we find comfort and we comfort others. Let me close this with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. God, it's, as we study a passage like this, it's incredible that we can even come to you and call you Father. Our God, we thank you, we love you. Lord, I, I pray right now we're going to listen through, as we listen through the words of Isaiah chapter 40 one more time, um, Father, I just pray that you would help us to see you for who you are. Help these words of this chapter lift our eyes up to you, that you would give us new strength. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God.
speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill laid low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls when the breath of the Lord blows on it. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters out in the hollow of his palm? Marked off the heavens with a hand span? Contained the dust of the earth in a cup? Or weighed out the mountains on scales or the hills by means of a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom of you did he consult? And who made him to understand? Who taught him justice and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drip from a bucket, accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts the islands like particulate. Many cedar Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for an altar sacrifice. Before him, all the nations are counted up as nothing is less than nothing, vanity and void. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. An idol from a mold, a workman casts it, and then some smith gilds it up with gold and forges for its silver chains. The one too poor for such an offering seeks some wood that will not rot, and finds a cunning chiseler to establish an image that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Have you not understood from the beginning? 
Has it not been told you from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the globe of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes down to nothing and the rulers of the earth to formlessness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes to the heights and behold the one who created all these, who brings out their host by numbers and calls them each by name. Because of the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary. His understanding cannot be searched out. Even youths shall faint and grow weary, and young men shall stumble and fall. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and never faint. The word of the Lord.